First Samuel 3 today, and we're going to be, you know, bopping around a little bit, but this is going to be our main text. I also want to do what I did last time and just hand a few texts out right now that some of you at the point when I get to them, I'll ask you to read them and you can just stand and read right where you are. Uh, just a few today. Could someone get Isaiah 54 verse 1? Thank you. How about Deuteronomy 28? Verses 15 through 18. Right there, yes, Ken, I see you back there. Um, And I think that actually might be it today. All right. Like you're at a football game with a sense of anticipation. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. If you have a Bible like mine, this is found on page 215. 1 Samuel 3, beginning with verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under the high priest Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God, which refers to the menorah, the lampstand in the tabernacle, which is lit every night, had not gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. He ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. So Samuel went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Hanani, here I am. You called me. My son, Eli, said, I did not call. Go back, lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Interesting, those two clauses are one and the same. A third time. The Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and again went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. And then the hair stood up on Eli's neck and shivers went down his whole body. He realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. And so Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood there. And calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel said, speak, your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears them tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of his sin that he knew about and his sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering And Samuel lied down until morning. 
and then open the doors of the house of the Lord. This is God's word. You can be seated. The story itself is powerful, isn't it? Um, Let me just kind of start with some context where we are in the whole biblical story. Uh, Let's go back to Genesis 3, where God's first temple, the Garden of Eden, uh, we read that the garden is lost. Uh, and, And the garden, if you remember, is the power source because it's the place where Adam and Eve, who are the first priests, are plugged into God and, and as priests, they're to be plugged into God so that they can priest God's glory and God's presence into all creation. But what Adam and Eve want is basically what a lot of us want, and that is a life without God, where they can be their own masters and in control of their life and where they get the glory. So what they do is they unplug themselves from the power source, and as a result... The world goes dark, and the garden is lost. But the gospel is this. For God so loves the world. Rather than give up on the world, what God is going to do is set in motion to restore the world. And he takes the least of all peoples, he takes this nation of slaves, he rescues them from Egypt, he restores the image of God in them, Then he places them on the world's main street to be a city on a hill, a nation of priests who are called to priest once again God's glory and God's presence into all the earth. Now when we get to 1 Samuel, we're 400 years into this project. Let's just call it Project Israel. Because Project Israel is God reclaiming a land. He takes this piece of real estate. And not just a land is he reclaiming, but he's also reclaiming a people. And, and through this chosen land and this chosen people who live in this land, God is going to redeem the world. It's also within this land that God replants his garden. And his garden is what? It's a tabernacle. And he assigns a whole tribe to be the keepers of that garden. And what tribe is that? That's the tribe of Levi. Aaron, who we learned about, is from the tribe of Levi. Phineas, who um, we learned uh, two weeks ago, is from the tribe of Levi. And essentially, Levi is the tribe that's supposed to be a pastor to a nation of pastors. They're to serve as priests to a nation of priests. In fact, if Israel is a body, then the tribe of Levi is the heart. And as the heart goes, so goes the whole body. And here's the deal. 400 years into this thing, Israel is rotten to the core. Why? The body's gone bad because the heart's gone bad. God's priests have become sick. Like, look at, we see it in, in what we just read this morning. Look at verse 2. It says, one night Eli, Eli is the chief priest, whose eyes were beginning to be so weak that he could barely see. And Eli can't see. But that isn't just physical blindness that the Bible is talking about, because in the previous chapter, he can't discern between wholehearted devotion and drunkenness. 
Remember Hannah comes to the temple, stands before Levi, and she pours her beautiful heart out to God, and Eli just thinks she's drunk. Not only is Eli spiritually blind, but then his sons are flat out wicked. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 22. It says, now Eli, who is very old, heard everything his sons were doing. His sons are the ch- chop pr- top priests under Le- Levi. And look what his sons were doing to all Israel. See, as the priest goes, the, as the heart goes, the body goes. How they slept with women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. <laughs> what are his sons' names? Does anybody remember? One of them's named Phineas. Okay? Oh, man. Think about his namesake, Phineas. What Phineas did when people slept in the house of God. And now these guys are fornicating. Rather than being plugged into God, they are plugging themselves into perversion. And there's a reason. There's a reason when God's word is rare. And where there are no visions. And I like how this is put in verse 2. But the lamp of the Lord had not yet gone out. And yeah, that's a reference to the the menorah in the temple. But it's also, um, it's it's a literary way of saying that as hopeless as this thing may look. In fact, as hopeless as your life may look right now. When everything seems lost, guess what? There's always going to be a Noah. There's always going to be an Abraham. There's always going to be a Gideon. There's always going to be a David. There's always going to be a Hezekiah. There's always going to be an Elijah. There's always going to be this flicker of light, this candle that's just kind of blowing in the wind. And it's in our story. It's Hannah. This broken in pain, woman. In fact, chapter one, and you guys probably learned this last week, Hannah's barren. Barren in that day is just simply another way of saying she's, she's hopeless because barrenness in that day is hopelessness. It, it's the equivalent of, of being bankrupt because in that culture, your status and your worth was directly tied to how many children you had. And so family hackman over here would be the kings and queens of, of, of the community, okay? But if you couldn't have children, you weren't even just seen as poor. It was bankrupt. It was hopeless. I mean, your children meant you had a future. So whenever you read about barrenness in the Bible, remember it's always equated with hopelessness. And yet, Hannah is a woman who knows where to take her hopelessness. She knows where to take her barrenness. She takes it to God. She takes it to the tabernacle. She takes it to the garden. In fact, look at uh, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. In her deep anguish, the word there just describes this utter brokenness. In her utter brokenness, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. When's the last time you've done that? When's the last time you you, you took your barrenness and your hopelessness 
uh, to the Lord and you just poured your heart out like that. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will take that son to the Lord for all the days of his life. I will offer him up and a razor will not be used on his head. I love this. She pours her heart out to God. And don't for a second think that she's going into this place to, to make a deal with God. Okay, God, listen, let's, 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 let's cut this deal. If, if, if you give me a son, then I'll promise to do this. That's not what's going on. Because when you look at the verse just previous to the one that we said, it says after, well, let's read it, verse 9. It says, once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah Hannah stood up. She arose. Where did she arise? She did this at Shiloh in the tabernacle. And the eating and drinking that she's doing there would be part of her her worship to God. And, And the fact that she stands up, That is a sign in the Bible of a person going from mourning and weeping to a place of resolution. She has this thing resolved. It's a sign that something has significantly changed in her. And it's it's not difficult to discern the change. Because no longer does she need a child for her worth and her significance Because in taking her barrenness to the Lord, she's freed up from what her culture says she needs to have to have worth and significance and status. Her culture screams at her to have any worth or value as a person, you must have children. But she takes her hurt and her brokenness to the Lord. And in doing so, she finds her worth in him. And how do I know this? Because she's willing to take what would be most precious to her. And like Abraham, place that precious on an altar and say, this this is yours. Her heart has gone from praying, God, give me a child for me, to now her heart is saying, God, give me a child for you. And how can she pray this? Because having children aren't, that's not her precious anymore. God has become her precious. And who has Isaiah 54 verse 1? you hear that? Sing, oh barren woman, for God will heal you. And that's exactly what Hannah does. She sings, and there her song is in, in chapter 2. And, and when you look at the, the song that her heart sings, it begins with her healing, because it begins with this word horn. It's, she says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord is my horn. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. And, and horn is the horn of anointing. 
The horn contained the, the oil. And she's talking about the oil of God's presence that's been poured all over her life and brought her healing. And she says, I lift that up. Can you sing that today? Because God's poured his oil over you and his presence. Do you have a song to sing? I waited patiently for the Lord. And he turned to me and he heard my cry. And he lifted me up out of the mud and mire. And he placed my feet on the rock. And he gave me a new song. A new song to sing. Are you singing, Christian? And the singing um, ends with the word horn. And now it's talking not about the horn of her healing, but, but, but the horn of his anointed. Anointed is the word for Messiah. And I want you to think about this. It's almost like Mary at the feet of Jesus pouring out her perfume all over Christ's feet. She already knows who this is. That this is Messiah. The one who's going to come into the world. And here she is. She ends this song by singing about the hope of Messiah. And I'll tell you, when you read this song, this song is the cliff notes for the whole book of Samuel. I'll even push it further. It's the cliff notes of the whole Bible. This also is the song that God's heart sings. It also happens to be the Magnificat, Mary's song. I mean, look at verses 7 and 8 of her song in chapter 2. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He also humbles and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes. And he has them inherit a throne of honor. If you don't know this, you need to. God loves barren. God loves weak. God loves poor. And the way the God of the universe always, always, always always works his salvation. It's not to the strong. It's not to the people on top. It's to the barren. It's through barren Sarah that God sets in motion his whole plan to rescue the world. It's through barren Rachel that God births Israel. It's through a barren Danite that God brings forth mighty Samson. It's through the ultimate barren, a virgin, that the hope of the world comes because God's salvation is not about us and our strength. It's about his strength. And it always comes through through weakness. It always comes through through barrenness. And my question to me is my question to you. Do you know that? Why are you working so hard? Why are you making this all about you? And here's the deal. We all have our barrenness, don't we? It might not be childlessness, like it was in that culture. But you know, our, our culture has many different ways of telling us that we're barren. That, that we don't measure up because we fail to possess this. Or we fail to look a certain way. Or we don't live in the right kind of neighborhood. Or we don't possess the right kinds of toys. Or we don't hang out with the right kinds of people. Or we don't make the right kinds of money. And see, in light of all this, as our culture screams at 
the stuff at us, we're tempted then to make things that remedy that are precious. And so it might be children, but it might not be children. It could be money. It could be success. It could be your looks. It could be a sport. It could be your job. It could be accomplishments. And all these things kind of give us this false sense of worth and measuring up. And they become our life and our real Lord and Saviors. The question is this, in our barrenness, where are we going to turn? And see, Hannah, like so many people in the Bible, teach us that we are to bring our barrenness to one place, and that is to God, and to pour our heart out to him. And I promise you that when you do this as an authentic, broken, humble person, he will heal you. And your heart will sing. I can't tell you how many times in my life I felt barren. Like I'm not measuring up. Because I'm listening to the culture and I'm listening to the voices around me. And I thank God for people like Hannah who remind me that there's only one place to bring our barrenness. There's only one place for healing. There's only one place that will cause our heart to sing. And see what Hannah is, is she's a microcosm of Israel because uh, by the time we get to Samuel, Israel as a, as a people and as a nation, they become barren. They're a wasteland. And why is it that Israel is barren? Well, could someone uh, who, who, who has Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 to 18? Are you ready, Ken? I know a lot of people don't want to say that about God, but you know what? God's, God has a love language with his people. It's called obedience. And if we just think that we can have God and live however we want, don't mock God. He won't be mocked. And that's a whole picture. That cursing is a picture of barrenness. And the reason why they're barren is, is, is because of the heart's sick. Israel has been unfaithful, just as unfaithful as Eli and his sons. And, and, and what it lacks is priests who are plugged into God and who are priesting God's presence and God's glory into this nation of priests who can then priest it out into the world. And here's the deal. Whenever something is rotten at the core, it's not long before the whole thing becomes sick. This is why Isaiah 1 Uh, God says to the prophet Isaiah, Israel has forsaken me. She's turned her back on me. And from the sole of her feet to the top of her head, they're sick. Your country is barren. But here's the deal. Just like Hannah has a husband who absolutely loves her in spite of the fact that she's barren, Israel has a God who deeply loves his barren bride, Israel. And look at uh, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 35. 
This is God's promise. This is part of the hope in the midst of their darkness and their barrenness. God says, I will raise up for, for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind, and I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointing.